Do you remember the last time that you got really sick? Anybody? Like, anybody get really sick over the holidays? Our, our family did. I think I mentioned it a, a few weeks ago. Emerson got really sick, got this 24-hour bug, and that night that she was sleeping in our room after she'd been throwing up all night long, Rayleigh came and knocked on our door and threw up in our bathroom, and we had two kids that were sick and had this 24-hour bug kind of holidays. And then the next day, Amanda got sick. I mean, like sick, laying in bed, can't get out of sick, that kind of sick. And she's not, you know, she's not that way. She wants to get up and do and go. And, and I remember thinking, this doesn't look so bad. Like, I mean, I don't really mind, like, throwing up. That doesn't bother me. Laying in bed all day long, I could catch up on so many TV shows. I'm still, like, in the shows I watch, my DVR just got into April of 2016. That's how far behind I am. And so I thought, man, I could, if I had a 24-hour bug, I could clear out, like, 12 shows or so. That sounds, sounds like a mini vacation. And two days later, I got it. And it was not a mini vacation at all. It was horrible. I mean, I was, laying, I was laying in bed, not going anywhere, but so sick. I don't know if you felt this way where you're so sick laying in bed, but you're so sick you don't even want to watch TV, right? You, you just, you want to sleep, but you can't sleep. Everybody's bringing crackers to you and Sprite. You're laying in bed where you should be comfortable, but you've laid there so long that it's not comfortable, right? That is, that's a horrible feeling. And, and you, you want to get up and stretch, and, and I would get up, and I would walk into the living room just to see what everybody was doing and check on them. And I felt like I'd been at like a youth ministry lock-in all-nighter, like just from the bed to the living room. I'd be like, how's everybody? Good, I'm going to go back to bed. You know, I mean, it was not at all what I had hoped it would be. I mean, I felt utterly helpless. A shower, not even on the radar to to get up and, and go do something like that. You know, just this pitiful piece of humanity laying in bed. I don't know, you know, if you've ever felt that way, that it's not just being sick, though. It's that, it's that feeling of being utterly helpless, you know, where, that, you, that you can't do anything. Most of us want, even if you're not a control freak, like I wouldn't consider myself a control freak, but there's still times where you, you just want to do something on your own, right? Like for me, I think about it, it's, it's usually putting something together, like a, a kid's toy around Christmas or, or, or trying to fix something in the house. And my wife, has the greatest of intentions, the greatest motive. She'll come over, and I've got the instructions laid out trying to figure out what pieces go where, and she'll come over and like, hey, can I help, you know, you want me to do this? And it's just like, no, just, just go away. I mean, I appreciate the help, but I, I just need to do this myself. I, I just need to get it done. I don't want help. See that, see that in youth ministry all the time. This, we just want to do it ourselves. We don't need help. We have kids, and you know, during the summer around here, it, gets, it can get pretty expensive. In fact, we just put up on, on the web, and it's going to be up just all the time, kind of like a layaway plan for, for families who go, I, I, when the summer rolls around, and I've got to put $1,000 down for two kids to go to camp and two different mission trips and this and that, and that's just too much that you can start putting 50 bucks away in January and 50 bucks in in February, and you kind of, kind of spread that because we know it gets so expensive. But I'll see parents, and, and they're, they're, they'll come in, and they'll talk about their student, they'll talk about camp, and they'll talk about a mission trip in the summer, and they'll say... Well, because of finances, we told them that they had, to, they had to choose one or the other, and they chose this one. And I say all the time, if it's just finances, please don't make them choose one or the other. If finances is the only thing holding you back, we've got a scholarship form right out here. Just, just fill it out, put it in, we'll make sure your kid gets there, because we don't want finances 
to keep this teenager from experiencing what God's going to do in their life on a mission trip or what he's going to do at camp. But there's so many parents who go, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want the help. We, we want to do it ourselves. Or, or maybe we feel like we should have done it ourselves, and now we don't want to, we don't want to accept the handout. We just do it ourselves. In March of 1989, Varig Flight 254 out of Brazil was flying from the Moraba Airport uh, to the Belém Airport. 48-minute flight. Kind of like an Austin to Dallas jump. Well, when the pilot sat down into the, the cockpit to put in a computerized flight plan, the, the computerized flight plan was flight plan 0270. But when he entered it into the airplane, he entered 270. And so when the flight took off, instead of heading northeast towards this uh, coastal airport in Belen, it turned west and started heading into the Amazon jungle. And so when it happened, the pilot realized pretty, pretty early on, since there's, there's something wrong, he'd done this flight before, something's not right, they got up to cruising altitude, and usually by the time you got to cruising altitude and you're going to you know, hit it and then start descending, you get there and you see Belem. You see where you're headed, and he gets to that point, and he doesn't see anything, so he just takes a, a 180 and turns the plane around the other direction, still not knowing exactly what's happening. Well, when the plane starts making that bank and that turn, People who've flown that before, you know, it'd be like if you're flying from Dallas to Houston, you get halfway there and all of a sudden the plane makes a, a major turn. People start asking the flight attendants, hey, what, you know, what's going on? The flight attendants go to the pilot. The people are concerned what's happening. And so he says this to the flight attendant, or he comes on, I'm sorry, he comes on the, the speakers and tells everybody on the plane that the Belem airport has had a power outage. And so they're just going to have to circle until the power comes back on and they can land. He was having conversations with traffic, air traffic control, or people on the ground. And even when he knew that he was totally lost, they had the, the recordings where he told them that they were about five minutes out. And he had no clue where he was. 68 minutes after they were supposed to land, the first officer discovers what's happened and realizes, hey, we've made this error in the flight plan. And the pilot dismissed him, told him to be quiet, and began looking for some runways that he might be able to bring the plane down on. An hour after that, they ran out of gas, crash-landed the plane in the Amazon forest 700 miles from Belém. I mean, how many times along the way in that journey what, could he have just gotten help? And I don't know how, you know, what the deal with air traffic control and all that happens, but talking to people on the ground... We're five minutes out. Why, why don't you say, hey, I need some help. Somebody figure out where we're at. When, when, the, when the first officer realized you, you've put in the wrong coordinates, why didn't he adjust them and put in the right ones? Why, why didn't he tell somebody then? What, when he was looking for the runway, why didn't he call for help instead of waiting until the plane ran out of gas? And I think it was 13 people lost their life in that crash because he didn't want to ask for help. And I, why, why don't we? I mean, maybe it's shame because we couldn't do something or, or we messed up and we don't want people to know that we'll you know, need help to get out, the fear of what, what people might think about us. Do you realize sometimes you asking for help is a blessing to other people, right? I mean, sometimes when, when you have a need and someone can come alongside you, even though you might be embarrassed 
uh, you might have some shame or guilt set in, you might be being used of God to bless somebody else. I've told this before. I mean, we have times like that. My wife and I struggle with this because with my traveling and things like that, there's sometimes where she could go with me someplace. Uh, like in, in September, we usually go to, to uh, New Mexico for a conference that I do, and, and she can go with us. But if she goes, she's gone for three or four days, and we have to figure out what to do with our kids. Um, I, you know, I'm for just like, leave them at home. Let them walk to school. They're 10 and 6. They'll be fine. Uh, she doesn't go for that, though. And so sometimes my parents or her parents who retire will, will come down and take care of our kids. But there's been some times where there's going to be a day where our parents can't do that or some time they can't. And so she'll go, hey, I, I just can't go. And so usually I jump in. I go, why don't you just let me handle this? Because I know there are some people, my accountability partner is one of them, that when I've asked people like, like in, in a general blanket email, hey, could somebody help us with our kids for, for one day? He got mad at me because I sent it out to a blanket email instead of calling him first and said, you always call my family first if you need us to take care of your kids because we want to do that. We, we want to bless you guys and serve you guys because we love you, and your kids are like, like family to us. And so, so if you want to go do something like that, man, let us know. You, you can even forget calling your parents. Just let us know. And so that, that's difficult, though, sometimes. It's difficult for my wife because she's like, I don't want to impose our kids on somebody else. And, and I come from the perspective of realizing that's a blessing. They feel like they've been able to serve us and minister to us and that is their calling and gift from God to give to him and to us. And so sometimes when we accept help, we actually bless somebody else. But what do you do? What do you do if you refuse to let people help you and you become absolutely helpless on your own? That's the question that we step into for this third part of this Game Changer series. If you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we, we started this football theme because we've said, hey, once we understand the gospel, that becomes a game changer for us. And if you want to catch up, lesson one and lesson two, they're online and they're on iTunes. We want our students and our families to take the gospel, which, which should be able to be communicated in about 60 seconds or less. We ought to be able to sit down with somebody and go, Here, here's the good news of Jesus. That's what the gospel means. But we want, instead of doing it in 60 seconds, we're taking five weeks to kind of dive deep with it because we're hoping that instead of just being able to repeat it, we'll be able to understand it and internalize it. And when we've understood it and internalized it, then we'll be able to not just explain it, but we'll be able to live it. We'll be able to answer questions for people. And so in week one, the very first kind of foundation of this gospel, we said this. We said God is good and he does good things. And we talked about God has created, he created the world. He created Eden for Adam and Eve to live in. And there was no sin, there was no disease, there was no death. It, it was paradise. And then last week, and what our students are talking about down the hallway, we said the world's problems are people problems. And we dug back into Genesis chapter 3, and we discovered that even though God created this paradise, man came along and sinned, that they were disobedient to God's plan. And when they, when they, when they sinned, and they took the plan that God had made, and they said, hey, you know what? We're going to do this with it. They broke it, and the world became broken, and we have followed in those footsteps with our own sin that have broken our lives. And so this, this paradise that a good God gave us got ruined because of you and me. And that's why we have in a world disease and death 
and and bad people and selfishness because sin became rampant. And so we said last week, you know, that that was kind of the the bad news. And we said last week too that, that even though we broke the world, there's also no hope for us to fix the world. We can't fix it. And so it just kind of got, the the news got worse and worse and worse. And I kind of gave a teaser towards this week. And this week is kind of where everything begins to turn back towards the good news, which is the gospel means. And so this week we're leaning into kind of step three. God is good. We ruined it. And step three is this. When we couldn't do anything, couldn't fix anything, God did everything. When we couldn't fix our broken selves, God stepped in and did everything that we needed to put the broken world and our broken lives back into place. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read a couple of of verses there. Give you a second to get there. Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 8. Romans is a, a book full of theology. Sometimes it's difficult for us to read just at a cursory level. And so what I'm going to do is I'm, we're going to read it. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, this translation. And we're going to stop kind of along the way in a couple of verses. I'm also going to put up in a second after I read it, not now, but in just one second, we're going to put up the, the message version, which is a paraphrase kind of in contemporary English so you can see how Eugene Peterson would say it. So let's look in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to keep reading, then we'll come back and go verse by verse. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's go back, though, and look at verse 8, because I want us to, to camp there for a minute. Paul says this. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to look. I put the verse up here. here here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrased that verse. He says, but God put his love on the line for us. Don't you love that? God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death. And I love this part, too while we were of no use whatsoever to him. Man, I love the way that reads. That God put his son out there for us, was sacrificed for us when we could do nothing. We were of no use to God. There was nothing that we had to offer. We were buried in our own sin. And it was in that, when we couldn't do anything, that God did everything. Now, we could do good things, but... There's no amount of good that you can do that will erase the bad, the sin that you've already done. And, and see, that's kind of where we get mixed up as people. We, we think, yeah, hey, I did some bad things. I've done some things along the way. But you know what? We, we believe that God has this, like, giant scale in heaven. And, and here are my bad things, and it weighs down. But if I'll just work hard enough, and I'll just do good enough, if I'll just go to church enough and read my Bible and try to be a good person and not steal, cheat, and lie— I'll I'll shift the balance into my favor, and when I stand before the Lord, when I die, he'll look and he'll go, hey, okay, yeah, you did some bad things, but you did way more good things, so come on in. That that idea is nowhere in Scripture. In Scripture, when we talk about works and the good deeds that we do, we do those because of this. 
not in order to gain this, but because it's already been done in our life. Because when we couldn't do anything, God did everything. And therefore, my response is to serve him, not to earn it, but in gratitude to what he's freely given. So this good, we can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. Let me, let me put it in perspective for you in a very dramatic way. And I realize this is an over-the-top illustration. If I came into your home and murdered your entire family, wiped everybody out, kids, spouse, parents, came during the holidays, brothers, sisters, how much good would I have to do to make what I had just done, the murdering of your family, go away? How much good? A week's worth? A year's worth? Maybe, maybe 50 years of doing good and trying to, 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 to make things right. I would come to you and go, listen, I've done 50 years of good, but those 50 years of good did not resurrect your family. It did not bring the, back the 50 years of Thanksgiving and the 50 years of Christmas and the 50 years of memories and walking with, with those family members that you lost because I took it away. So, so understand this. There, there's no amount of good that we can do that erases or changes what we've already done. When, when we sinned, we became terminally stained. And God who's perfect and God who's holy and God who has no sin in him and there's no sin in heaven looks at us who have sinned even if it's just been one time and it's disqualified us. It's put this wedge between us and God. And so we can go do good things, but we will never erase by doing the good things the stain that's on our lives. It's been done. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son as a sacrifice when we were of no use to him. That, that is the good news. God, God set out this plan. He, he made paradise. He's a good God. And, and he created humans and he put us there and he said, I'm going to have a relationship with you. And then we of our own free will said, forget you. I'll do my own thing. I care more about me than I care about you, God. We sinned and broke the world. And at that point, there was nothing we could do to fix it. But while we were still sinners, God showed up to save the day. Look what he says in, in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. We've been made right before God because of the blood of Jesus. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Here's how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, now that we're set right with God, same verse, just a paraphrase. Now that we are set right with God by means of the sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there's no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at our worst, when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son. Now that we're at our best, not because we did it, but because God did it, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by the means of his resurrection life. So, so here's the deal. It's not just that when we were broken and unable to fix it, our lives, that, that Jesus showed up and saved the day, but now we're no longer enemies of God. 
We're no longer estranged from him. We're no longer on either side of the battle. We're on his side, and God looks at us justified. People use that term to help us understand. They say it's justified, never sin. We've been made righteous now. We're on on the right team. And so Paul says, if when we were sinners, at the height of our sin, that our very worst, God saved us, how do you think he's going to respond to us now that he doesn't see sin? Great question. Think about this. What if we, what if we could take every sin that you've ever done and start to in some way symbolize it with things and stack it up on this stage? Every, every unkind word you've ever said, every immoral thought that's ever crossed through your mind, every lie you've ever told, Every time you disrespected somebody, every time you gossiped, every time you stole, every time you cussed, every time you were, you, you were short with your kids or your spouse when, when, when you shouldn't have been, every time you had uncontrollable anger. And we just started from, from when you were like two years old or from when you were born, we just started stacking those things up into a pile of sin. It'd be pretty big. Let's be honest, we couldn't put it on the stage, Right? Every time, like, ladies, you thought, and you looked at it, and you thought, I think I might kill my husband. You know, like, that goes on the stage, starts to pile. Yeah, see, the ladies' piles are getting higher now because they were going to kill us because of our pile, right, of sin. So we have all of this now. Let's call a timeout there. That's huge. But we need to add to it because God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He already knows the future. And so not only the sin that you've done, But the sin that you will do is going to be added to this pile. We're going to have to move it off the stage out into the parking lot. And people from Georgetown are going to drive, and they're going to go, man, they must be building a new building. It's even bigger than that youth and children's building. At our worst, when it was all piled up, Jesus forgave us and wiped it away forever. Not not covered it up, not moved it to the back lot, not prettied it up, erased it as if it was never there and sees us as completely justified and righteous in his eyes. And then he starts pouring out grace onto us. He didn't just forgive you, he's blessed you. I mean, forgiving, that that would be enough, right? I mean, that pile of sin, if God just said, hey, I'm going to wipe it away, and we're just going to call it even, we would be like, yes, that that is so not a fair deal in our favor, but we'll take it. But God says, not only am I going to erase it, I'm going to replace it with blessing. I'm going to let you, now that you've been forgiven, I'm going to let you walk with me. I'm going to let you, as the scripture says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can come into my presence. You who sinned against me over and over again, I'm going to erase it. I want you to come, and I'm going to call you a child of mine. I'm going to give you the inheritance that that stands for Jesus. Jesus is now part of your inheritance. Ephesians 1 says, I'm going to give you every spiritual blessing that is in, in the heavenlies is at your disposal. Not just erased, I'm pouring out grace onto you. See, that is really hard for me to comprehend because I don't function that way. Looking for an illustration, I mean, God, you know, sometimes 
Sometimes you start telling a story as a pastor, and in that story, God starts leaning in and speaking to you. There's a, a guy, he's a youth minister, he was in a class that I taught, and I was going with some of our, some people from our church, we were going to this conference called Catalyst, it's a leadership conference, fantastic, in Dallas usually, um, this year we're, gonna have to, we're going to one in Cincinnati, great, great speakers from all over the nation come in, pastors talking about leadership, uh, talking about spiritual growth, it's like a three day, it's fantastic, it's expensive. Tickets like 300 bucks just for that. And then you've got, you know, airfare, things like that. But it, it is some of the best $300 I've ever spent in my life when I go. Just incredible. And so when I went one year, they give you, an, you can sign up, kind of early bird sign up and save like 75 bucks. I'm like, I'm going to do that. And so I ordered like four or five tickets because we had about that many people going. And then when that year came along, I had an extra ticket that nobody could use, nobody, nobody wanted to buy or things like that. And so I'd already paid for it. And I had all these kind of young youth ministers that had been in, in some classes with me at Howard Payne and some other things. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it out to them because some of them in small churches, they can't afford a $300 ticket to see, you know, go to this conference. And so I threw it out and I had a, a young guy say, yeah, I'm in. I, I want to go. Man. I, I live in the Metroplex, so I don't have to get a hotel. I don't have to, you know, fly. I just have to, I'll drive over. I'll stay at home. I said, great. So I said, I, I'll give it to you. So I shut down offering it to other people. So the day of the conference, you know, three weeks later, we're up in Dallas. We're leaving our hotel. I call him and said, and we've been talking a little bit off and on. I said, hey, uh, I'll just meet you right in, out in front and have your ticket. He says, oh, man, I've got some stuff that kind of came up. I got some stuff at work and some, uh, I'm finishing up a school paper stuff, so I'm not going to be able to go. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. I mean, it makes, me, it makes me angry, if I was really honest, because it's like, here was a $300 ticket that three weeks ago, if you had said, hey, I'm not going to be able to go, or I, don't, I, may, I might have some class stuff. I mean, you had a syllabus. You, you could even say, hey, I don't think I'm going to go. Let me, let me let you know last minute, but try to give it away to somebody else. I could have given it away to somebody else. Somebody else could have experienced that conference, but instead I just burned the ticket, wasted $300. And so... What I was going to say to you, and I'm just going to be really honest with you so you can get a, a look at my life. What I was really going to say to you is even though sometimes we forgive people, we don't always want to bless them again. And, and, and when, I was, when I was writing that down, the Lord said to me, oh, so you've forgiven him, huh? <laughs> so I'm in a process. I'm in a journey, just like you are. And so I can't say to you, that, that I've forgiven me because that's something that I'm working on right now. It's like, Lord, that's, you're, you're right, I haven't, and I should, but I don't want to. Like, I'm still mad about it, like, maybe three years later. I don't know. Like, that's, a, that's a warning sign. Like, for me. So, but I'm, I'm working in this journey, but let's just say I had been spiritually mature enough to forgive him. I still don't think, like, if I had another Catalyst Conference ticket, I wouldn't call him. And if he said, if I posted online and he said, hey, yeah, I want to go. I didn't get to go last time. I would tell him, well, if it's left over on the day of, show up and it's yours. Right? I mean, that's, but here, here's what Paul tells us. Not only did God forgive us and say, listen, you blew it. You wasted a ticket. But God says, here's next year's. And I don't respond that way. Now, again, we can talk about, you know, I mean, the, the Lord does, you know, we, when we look in, in the Gospels, talk about, you know, 
giving gifts and they invest it and earn it. And, you know, to, we're not just saying that, I'm not even saying that every time we just continue to give it over and over and over again, but the heart will be there. We may choose not to because of stewardship, but not because of anger or bitterness or frustration because God gives bountifully of his grace. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. And then, then he closes this passage with this verse in verse 11. He says, more than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plotting prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. You know what one of the problems of modern-day Christianity is? There's no more singing or shouting. In a Baptist church, I mean, we, we're, we're a little bit leery of clapping, raising our hands. Worship pastors, hey, raise your hands. And we're, we do this. I'll go halfway, you know. I'm not, going, I'm not, I'm not Pentecostal. I'm just I'm kind of Baptist, you know. Half. But when we understand that 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 pile of sin, past and future, has been erased when you couldn't do anything. God did everything. And then not only was it erased, but he started to pour out his blessing on you. How in the world do we not sing and shout our praises? Have we just become complacent? Have we just begun to expect that of God? I mean, listen, I'm going to be really honest with you. Christmas almost every year, this class gives my family like some fantastic, crazy Christmas gift. Like, like so over and above and beyond. Putting gutters on our house so that our house won't wash away, you know, which is close to it at certain big rains. And, and, and I get that. And I mean, it, it, I, I'm usually calling my parents afterwards and going, you won't believe this. Like last year it was this, the year before it was that, the year before that it was this. And, and I'm like, I, I almost feel like sometimes they don't realize that I actually get paid to do this. So, I mean, they don't, they don't have to do that, you know. Uh, it's not a Christmas, I mean, there's no, nobody's expecting this Christmas bonus, but, but it's, like, it's just this blessing makes me go, man, I, I don't understand it. And I, and I tell people about it. And my other youth minister friends, they're like, man, we want a class like that. And I'm like, sorry, I'm not leaving. You know, they're all, and so, but, we, but we talk about it and we're excited about it. But I'll be honest with you, and I'm not saying this to downplay. If you went back to my life from birth till now and could see into the future, you giving me gutters is nothing compared to what God has done in my life. And yet sometimes I get more excited about gutters than I get excited about that. There's something wrong there. So what do we do? How do we take this third step? God is good and does good things. The world's problems are people problems. We broke it with our sin. And then when we couldn't do anything about it, God did everything about it. So what do we do? Let me give you just some thoughts. And I mean, first and foremost, I want you to do and respond to the Lord every time in how, whatever he leads you to do. And the Holy Spirit might take his word from this scripture, and, and he just might nail you something. You go, man, this is my application to that. But I try to give you some applications to think through in case you're, you're wrestling with that. And here's, here's the first one. We'll put it up on the screen. I'm going to encourage you to worship fully engaged. Now, let me give you a kind of running a long time. Let me give you this story. Several years ago, I, I, not a Catalyst conference, I went to an Orange conference in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And so we had a team. We flew out to Atlanta. Well, it just so happened that the night that we were there, it was kind of the kickoff for the Orange Conference. It was just like a one general session. And then the next day was when all of the breakouts and all the other sessions happened. Just so happened that that Wednesday night or Thursday night, whatever night we were there, was also a home game for the Atlanta Hawks in the playoffs. Now, I grew up an Atlanta Hawks fan. Most of you would go, we've never even heard of them. Um, That's an NBA team. It was the NBA team I grew up loving because it was on TBS all the time. They had Dominique Wilkins and and Spud Webb and Moses Malone. So I watched those all the time. So I've been a lifelong Hawks fan, like the only one in Texas. Don't get to go to games. Every now and then, I get to go to the San Antonio game the one time a year when they play. This year's during spring break. Can't go. I'll be in mission trips. I go away the next year. I mean, that's how I'm looking for it. And I get a chance to go to a playoff game. And I thought it'd be cool. We'll take our team. So I asked our team, hey, do y'all want to go to a playoff game? And they all looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, we flew to Atlanta to go to the conference. I'm like, well, the conference is cool. But like, so I got one ticket. I was the only one that wanted to go. They had the vehicles. So they drove me to a train station, like way north metro Atlanta. And I got on a train by myself. Someplace, I didn't hardly know where I was going. I was talking to people that lived there. And they said, it'll end at, at, at the Omni, at the, at the arena. So I took it all the way down, got off, walked in to the arena by myself. But I came prepared. Because it was going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I got second-row seat. Also, it's the Atlanta Hawks. It only cost about 50 bucks, even though it was the playoffs. <laughs> and I remember walking down, and I walk in this arena, and I'm, I'm there like an hour before the game starts, purposefully, because I want to I take it all in. And I want to walk around and see, and I'm not going to buy a $42 Hawks t-shirt there, but I want to see it. And I walk down, and, and, and there's actually a, an envelope on my chair. And I knew as I walked down, this is going to be like the invite into the locker room. It was, a, it was a thank you for buying a ticket, and it was left on my seat. But, I mean, for a moment, I was dreaming. And we sat there, and I was surrounded by these fans, and we cheered. Right behind me, where I was standing, was this lady. And we had a, sp- a small forward named Marvin Williams. And, and his mom. And she's yelling for her boy. And she's talking about, that's my boy. And, and every time he does something good, she's like, that's my boy. And so I'm like, I, I'm in the midst of a playoff game with my favorite team. I've got here early. I'm cheering. I'm screaming. I'm like part of the family. <laughs> Marvin's mom is here. I'm talking to her. I'm waiting for the, like, the dinner invite. You know, like, <laughs> I really, I'm like leaning in. Like if I can become friends with Marvin Williams' mom, I can, I can at least get an autograph. No lie. It wasn't until the end of the fourth quarter, we've been talking, and she's been talking about a boy where I said something, and she's like, oh, no, he's not my son. That's just my boy. I love him. <laughs> I mean, I've been, like, talking to her. Like, we're like this, and I'm like, what? Like, nobody does that. That's weird. And she's like, not any weirder than you trying to be my friend. Like, you know. Man, it's an incredible experience. Now, here's the takeaway. How often, worshipfully engaged, how often do I walk? into the 11 o'clock service early. Early because I'm excited to be there. Early because I want to I talk to some people who are in the family. And now it might be weird to yell and scream, but, but to be fully engaged in worship, 
do I love the Hawks more than Jesus? No. The same reason why I get excited about gutters more than I get excited about what God has done. And that's got to, that's got to flip. We've got to worship fully engaged. So let me give you a really quick four-step plan to help you take some baby steps. Here's, here's one. And this is not meant to, to be condescending at all, I promise. But go to worship at 11 o'clock. I'll be honest with you, I mean, like, our class is like, we kind of have a reputation that at 1030, the parking lot out here gets a little bit emptier than it should. Go to worship with your, with your family, with, with the people that you, that you are walking through life with, the body of Christ that you're a part of. And not only go, as you're walking in, say a prayer. God, as I walk in today, I, I want to know you better when I walk out. God, I've got a moment today. I've got 30 minutes of song with some other people for us to collectively lift our voices and praise you and thank you and worship you because you wiped out my pile of sin and you filled it full of grace and blessing. And so, God, I've got a few minutes today. And so, so sing, guys. Use your voices aloud to sing no matter what it sounds like. And as the words are on that screen, think through the words that you're saying. And then... Get a notebook or a journal and take some notes when the Word of God is open, and you'll start becoming more fully engaged in worship. And we can respond to that. I mean, that's kind of what that passage has gone off the screen now, but, but we respond with worship. Here's the second thing. To follow Jesus. You know, you know, in the Gospels, Jesus either said the phrase, follow me, or the eyewitness account of people who were walking with Jesus recorded that so-and-so followed him or dropped everything that they had and followed him nearly 30 different times. And that's what we do. Because of what's been done, when we couldn't do it, when we couldn't do anything, God did everything, we now follow him. And so here's what I, I want to I ask you. Do you know that when this life comes to an end, that you're going to be with Jesus forever? Has there ever come a time in your life where that pile of sin was actually erased? It doesn't get erased by going to church. It doesn't get erased by every good thing we do, something comes out of the pile. It's only erased by confessing Jesus as Lord and asking him to come in and transform your life. So if we're going to follow him, there's a beginning point to that. When Jesus looked at Matthew, the tax collector, and said, follow me, and, G and, and Matthew did, there was a beginning point. When Peter and Andrew dropped the fishing nets, there was a beginning point. Some of us have not had the beginning point. We've kind of watched at a distance as people have followed Jesus, and we've kind of taken notes, and we've seen, and we've learned some things along the way. But if you've never had that starting point where you go, you know what? I need that pile of sin forgiven and erased and moved out of my life, then let's do that this morning. And we're not at youth camp. We're not going to bring counselors into the back and all bow our heads and close our eyes and raise our hands and, and we'll take you out back and we'll counsel you and fill out a card. We're not, I, I'm going to leave this to you. If you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you need to take a step here Find me, send me an email, say, hey, can we do lunch? I got some questions. Can we talk on the phone? I, I want to make sure that I'm where I need to be. 
Or maybe if you go, I'm, I'm little, I don't, you know, you're like a pastor. You might judge me because you don't, you know, more of the Bible than I do. You know, or something like, fi- find a friend. Find somebody that you know is walking with the Lord and go, man, I, I just want to nail some things down and know that I know that I am following Jesus. Can we do that? No counselors, no cards. If you need Jesus, pray and ask him in your life. You can do that and then just tell your friend, hey, I did it. There's no magic words. Just, just now, before we leave, just say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I want you to come save my life. God, I'm, I want to follow you. I believe you died on the cross, and you're raised from the dead. Again, not magic words. It's your heart going, I'm, I'm in, Lord. And then let somebody know. Because baptism comes next, and discipleship starts to happen. We need to figure those things out. I'll tell you one last story and give you a few minutes to talk. I read the story of a, a guy, and he was talking about his Uncle Greg, his uncle Greg had cerebral palsy and was a quadriplegic. They had an electric wheelchair, so he could, he could move around, but he didn't talk very well because of the cerebral palsy. He's very hard to understand. But he said, my uncle Greg, he said, had an, a golden attitude. I mean, he loved the Lord, never complained about his lot in life, that he had no use of his arms or legs the cerebral palsy had, had taken his ability to communicate away. And he said, my Uncle Greg went with our church to a thing that they called Handicamp. That's a terrible idea for a camp for people who are handicapped. But that's what it was. And it was a, a four-day camp. And a guy from their church named John volunteered to go as a part of the ministry to the people who had these special needs. And he got assigned, John got assigned to Uncle Greg. And so for four days... 24 hours a day, John does everything with Greg. Feeds him, gives him things to drink, goes with him everywhere he goes. At night when they're sleeping, uh, Uncle, Uncle Greg's in bed. John is on an air mattress on a concrete floor right there next to him. Helping him go to the bathroom, helping him shower, get to, you know, bathe, all of that. For four days, 24 hours, one of the things they do at, at that camp every year is all of the uh, camp participants get to go swimming. And they put them in flotation devices and things so that, you know, a quadriplegic who can't really get into the water can get out and they can, they can swim with their sponsors. And then at the end of the week, they, they, they kind of have their closing ceremony and, and they always will bring up the camper and their sponsor and they ask them, hey, what was, what was the best part of your week? And they said invariably, every time the campers always say swimming. Every one of them is always swimming because they don't get to do that. And so they started asking, they asked uh, they asked John, because of Greg's language ability, because it was difficult, they said, hey, maybe you can help, you know, tell people what he's, you know, what was best. And so John got up, and, and he started talking about Uncle Greg. And he said, we, we just, we nicknamed him the fish, because he, he swims like a fish. And he had such a great time, and it was an incredible week, and here's what I learned. And he said to Uncle Greg, he said, hey, what, what was your best part of the week? And he said, Uncle, they said, Uncle Greg pointed his finger to John and said, you. And John deflected and said, oh, come on. I mean, there's things that were awesome, like swimming and snack time. I mean, we had this and we had that. I mean, of all those things, like what was your favorite part of the week? And Uncle Greg pointed at him again and said, you. You know why? Because when Greg could do nothing, John did everything. And that's what Jesus is. He made a great place for us because he's good, a perfect world. We broke it, sin came in the world. And then when we couldn't do anything, God did everything. 
the first three parts of this five-part walk of the gospel. Man, we need to rejoice and live in a whole new way because those truths were sunk into us. Let me pray for us, and then I want you to have some time to reflect and talk.